This is WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on Lumpen Radio. Hello, this is Kiefer Dunn. I'm your host for Buildings on Air, the show where we talk about architecture, politics, Sometimes one, sometimes the other. Um, but yeah, we, we're back on our regular beat. So we had two very special shows um, in the last month uh, on the occasion of the Chicago Architecture Biennial. Um, and we're here first Saturdays of the month um, back on schedule. Uh, this is a really great show we have lined up. Um, we're starting off chatting with uh, Alex Billet of Red Wedge Magazine, um, the uh, socialist arts publication. Um, we'll be chatting about the relationship of um, uh, left politics to the arts. Um, then, uh, after a break, we'll talk with Anjali Rao about uh, Jane Addams and um, <laughs> the way that her name and legacy has been used is being used and abused um, for branding a fancy hotel. We'll also be chatting with Anjali about the Chicago Architecture Biennial a little bit. Then Zach Mortise is going to come on. He'll also be chatting with about the Chicago Architecture Biennial. We'll be talking about sort of some of the media reactions. Um, the direction that the biennial will take moving forward, etc. Then Angelie and Zach are going to come together, and we're going to talk about the Chicago Architecture Biennial even more. Um, you know, it's it's one of the biggest events in architecture in the country, um, and I think it raised a lot of really important issues. So we'll be chatting about those here on Buildings on Air. And then, um, lastly, to round out the show, we'll be chatting with Anne Louie and Craig Reschke, as we do every month, uh, and we'll be answering your questions about buildings. So there's still time to get those in. Um, if you want to have us answer a question about buildings, um, you can tweet at us at Buildings on Air, B-L-D-G-S on Air, and we'll answer your question. Um, anyway, that brings us to now. Um, Alex is in the studio. Alex, how's it going? It's going okay. How are you, Kiefer? I'm doing very good. Very good. good. It's a nice, nice rainy Saturday. Fall is settling in here mm-hmm. in Bridgeport. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Chicago in the fall is just beautiful. I yeah. Love it, so. It's great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so tell, tell us about you. Tell us about your relationship to Red Wedge. What is Red Wedge? Have at it. <laughs> so um, Red Wedge started um, about, God, what, what are we talking about? A little over five years ago, actually. Uh-huh. Um, and it just started out with uh, sort of uh, fairly informal meetings uh, that came out of uh, the Socialism Conference that's held every year here in Chicago, mm. uh, sponsored by uh, the Haymarket Books and uh, Center for Economic Research and Social Change. Um, <clears throat> and... Uh, there were, as always, there's several talks on art, uh, most of which are really quite, uh, uh, quite good. Yeah. Um, but uh, so we we felt that it was time for the left, the American radical left, to have more of a presence in the arts. Sure. The way that it has uh, when it's been at its strongest. Now, of course, right. this was five years ago, and things were very different. There was still very much a, a sense of optimism coming out of uh, the Arab Spring, the Egyptian Revolution, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the movement of the squares in Europe, yeah. uh, and uh, of course, Occupy here in the United States. Right. So there was this sense, all of these had very much a 
a very sometimes confusing, uh, chaotic, but very wonderful relationship to art, poetry, mm-hmm. music. Uh, the the examples go on and on from the usage of Arab hip hop uh, in. Mm. Uh, in Egypt uh, during the during the the movement that brought down Mubarak originally to mm-hmm. to just all of say the Occupy art committees that sprung up like wildfire right. when Occupy was at its uh, at its height. Now again, that's five years ago. Things are obviously very different. Sure. So I think over the past five years we've sort of evolved in trying to sharpen uh, as red wedge what we <laughs> actually the wedge. yes exactly i mean like <laughs> frankly it, it, that's the, uh, the perfect analogy yeah I mean, obviously we picked the name uh you know we uh we, we picked the name coming out of those meetings uh just some of these informal meetings of different uh, art people who are active in the arts actors dancers uh hmm. poets music journalists and things like that and it sort of evolved into the idea uh, of you know putting out First, just a website, and then starting in 2014, we started going to print. Right. 2015, we put out a yearly journal, and now we've gone quarterly now. And and the idea is to stand in the tradition of and reestablish the tradition that, again, the American left has had in its relationship to arts and yeah. great left-wing uh, arts publications from uh, well uh, the, the new masses just cultural publications generally yeah the the new masses the liberator uh, um, so, some the the relationship that the communist party had to some of the greatest jazz musicians in mm. the 1940s for example or folk oh, musicians that's interesting. yeah yeah so i mean you know Dizzy Gillespie was evidently a member of the Communist Party for a while. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> he always, well, he said years later that he basically only joined to meet girls, <laughs> which is a very Dizzy Gillespie thing to say. But, you know, these are th- 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 there's an importance to art in being able to imagine a very different world. Sure. Is I think what it comes down to. That that was that was at the heart of the discussions that led to the beginning of Red Wedge and why we've evolved and ha- tried to experiment around with different formats and things like that. But that's always been at the heart of it. The idea that imagination is actually very, very important to any movement for radical social change. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's interesting because, you know, we were chit-chatting before the show. And one of the reasons why I'm I'm so excited to have um, you on is because – when a lot of this show and a lot of you know my sort of write writing outside of it and work outside of it, um, you know has has been to um, essentially convince architects that um, you know th- the art stuff that they do is not as political as they think it is, <laughs> and that they need to be involved in 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 a sort of very direct way um, with with movements and and you know the the position of the architect in society is, is is a little bit different than the artist. There's some definitely some commonalities, but um, you know like that's mostly a rhetorical position that I mm-hmm. that I take, uh, especially when you have a lot of art architects who really they this is this is their almost excuse right they put anything out there and they say you know we are sparking an imaginary and that is somehow a radical in and of itself and um, that was the criticism of the U.S. pavilion at the last uh, biennial which was protested by a group called Detroit Resists mm-hmm. um, which we talked about I think in the very first episode of the show a little bit but like um, yeah so it's funny and, and that's I'm excited to have you on because it's it's all like I, I see Red Wedge is moving in, 
in the sort of like opposite direction almost, right? It's 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 coming born born of um, people who are incredibly involved, who are saying that the the the, the arts are really important for um, to any movement in particular ways. And so you know, I think um, um, it's where it makes it forces my sort of like rhetorical poise to break down a little bit. <laughs> but right, right, yeah, sure, yeah, which is really good. That's really good. Um, but but yeah, I'm 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 sort of I'm sort of curious, like like about how that imaginary um, um, and and you know the the sort of tagline for for Red Wedge is rekindling the revolutionary imagination. Like how do, how does that manifest itself um, in in the magazine, in the kind of work, in the curation, in the editorial process? Like what 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 what, what does that mean in sort of like uh, concrete terms? Well, it's there are a lot of ways to answer that question, mm. but but I think the primary one, if our starting point is the idea that actually imagination is not just some sort of an art is not just some sort of side thing to a strategy for actually changing the right. world, that it actually has a very interwoven, complex, very changing relationship with revolutionary praxis, sure. if you will, with, you know, radical building a radical movement. Um, if, if that's the case, then I think it, 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 it necessarily means you have to take a fairly experimental and critical I to mm. the type of art that you want to showcase, that you sure. want to put out there, particularly given the lay of the land right now, culturally and artistically. Neoliberalism has done something very um, unique and sometimes, well, frequently mind-boggling <laughs> to our relationship to art. There's this sense because of the internet and YouTube and... Uh, Bandcamp and everything else that somehow access to information, culture, and art is has just been flattened and democratized. Right. And there's an element to that that is there's an element of access that you can't deny here. But the idea that it's been democratized outside of um, outside of the power that, that somehow the power structures sure. th that the manipulation of ideology that has always actually been part of capitalism's relationship to the arts, the idea that that's gone away just, it, 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 it simply doesn't hold up. Sure. So. Yeah, this sort of end of history narrative. Yes, exactly. And right now we're in a moment really that, that's been the moment we've been in since 2008 that's been slowly sort of opening up this sort of post-post-modern moment, I mm. guess you could say, where we're not quite sure what's taking its place. But history, you know, history obviously never really stopped. Sure. But now it's impossible to, it almost looked, to people who actually believed that history had stopped, that it right. was the end of history, it looks to them like history's restarting right now. Sure. Just because it is so, um, I mean, you know, the rise of right-wing populism, the return of uh, socialism as a viable alternative, very weak and anemic and contradictory as it is, Corbin, Sanders, the growth of the Democratic Socialists of America to 30,000 people. You know, th these are class struggle and class forces. The idea that history happens and it is always this sort of morphing thing. I, I, I think that has to, um, that puts a question of agency. Yeah. That puts, puts a question of the revolutionary subject 
back out there. The idea, what do I mean by that? I mean, basically the idea that people, ordinary people, can change the world. That's not an idealistic right. thing. And, and <laughs> it's, it's an understanding of just how history works. Sure. And so where does art come into that? Yes. I think the if art is an interaction ideologically, right. then that means that you don't just... We, we all... Everyone out there knows art or music or poetry that is political and left-wing, sure, but doesn't really stand out formally from apolitical right. stuff. And that can also lead to simply a lot of bad political art. <laughs> we, we've, we've all experienced it, you sure. know? I mean, and it, it, it's, it's just, it, it, we've, it, it's all been out there. So I, I, I think the question of what kind of art do we want to put out through the magazine, what type of poetry, yeah. it's... The kind that challenges not just through its ideas, but through its form. Right. Preconceived notions of mm. aesthetic convention. Our notion of good and bad, beautiful or ugly, are shaped by capitalism. Right. They are shaped by neoliberalism. And honestly, you, you could argue that with this kind of... With this uh, this notion on there out there that a culture and access to it has been completely democratized, you could argue actually, and I, mm -hmm. I agree with this, that in some ways the culture industry is more powerful, influential, and hegemonic sure. than it has ever been right. under neoliberalism. Right. And so that especially begs the question of form and not just content. Right. And how do the two inform each other? So you look at surrealist poetry back in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a great example, and obviously we, we see ourselves at Red Wedge as standing in the tradition of the Surrealists, as well as many other great art movements, from the Situationists to the best of punk rock and hip-hop that came out sure. um, in the 70s and 80s, well, and still continues to come out today, mm -hmm. obviously. But, but you look at, say, the Surrealists, they weren't just—it's it, it, still very odd to me mm -hmm. that how— um, unacknowledged it is that the surrealists were uh, the great bulk of them were communists right back in the 1930s um and they saw a linkage between testing b between their politics and the need to test what had to uh, to question and break through what had become what was essentially yeah. a rationalization right of brutality of exploitation of what had led people to, to die by the hundreds of thousands in the trenches in World War One, mm. This was, so when they were, it's very easy to say, look at surrealist poetry or surrealist literature or surrealist painting and say, that's just nonsense. Mm -hmm. But what they're actually doing is challenging us to think in a more utopian way that, and that's not to say it's all successful. Sure. But sometimes the best art is the art that fails. Right. So <laughs> I, I think... We want to reconnect the idea of being artistically and aesthetically daring sure. with I, ideas yeah. of revolution. It makes sense, yeah. Like, well, there's there's this question I think about the agent the agency that f like form and formal invention has in and of itself, and and um, you know, I and I that's it's a really it's a really it's a topic of urgent concern in in architecture at the moment, and mm -hmm. we'll be talking with Angeli and Zach about the that at, in in relation to the Chicago Architecture Biennial, but you know. Uh, um, a lot in, in architecture, the the idea of formal invention is deeply linked with the kind of like um, the 
the spectacle, right? For mm. to 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 use a, a bit of sort of jargon, right? Like all of these things are designed to sort of be like immediately consumable as as images, mm-hmm. and and it strikes me that that's a kind of that's a different maybe formal invention than the, than the kind that you're talking about. Um, or and and I'm and I'm not really sure. I guess it's hard to always talk about these things in abstract terms without citing examples, right? Because um, and and also it's hard to talk about form on the radio. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that yeah. actually. If you're talking about physical sight form, yeah, yeah. <laughs> describe it anyway. Yeah, but you know, I I I, I always I'm, I'm always curious about this because and, and I think for me it maybe boils down to a question of uh, of of autonomy and and I think. Um, in architecture, a lot of these these ideas about you know inventing new forms of building and representation in architecture and um, artistic architectural representation, um, um, yeah, are 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 totally sort of um, yeah linked linked to the image and uh, the idea that we are like we can be autonomous through these things because mm-hmm, that is mm-hmm. a sort of discrete disciplinary knowledge um, and that that autonomy is somehow radical in and of itself but but nothing is so autonomous right um, mm-hmm. so it's 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 uh, I guess interesting to hear about these sorts of relationships between social movements and artists um, and I, I'm I guess I'm curious just to ask a maybe dumb question out of that soup of words um you know did the artist like uh, did the surrealist artists in in this example that we were just raising did they really understand their poetry to be like political change in and of itself or did they see it as like a sort of legitimating cultural force or did they see it as just kind of making strange conventions and that that had some minor role to play in support of a movement uh, maybe there's a better example than the surrealist to use but i'm i'm curious how how artists understand themselves in relation to movements i mean that's actually a really interesting question, and I don't think there's any one answer. Um, my uh, w- w- what I think actually, um, what I think a, a way to sort of broadly answer that is, mm. is sort of all of the above. Actually, yeah. it depended on the surrealist. It depended on the. Um, it depended on the surrealist and it depended on the circumstance. Sure. Uh, you know, Andre Breton, who was sort of looked at as kind of the 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 father of surrealism in many ways you know yeah. the main mover and shaker and lifelong revolutionary too he was someone who i think i think had a fairly um at times a, a a bit of a sanguine uh understanding of what they were doing uh but sometimes maybe a little bit more pessimistic um and part of that had to do with the fact that he was you know uh, come the 1940s fleeing europe yeah uh to escape the nazis right uh but it's I, I I think there I don't think any of the most politically committed surrealists back mm. in the 1930s thought that what they were doing was a substitute for joining a movement, mm-hmm. getting involved, uh, agitating in your workplace or on your campus, mm-hmm. things like that. I, I I don't think they saw it as a substitute, but I think they did see it as an ideological and and sort of praxis, a practical complementary. To it, uh, yeah. if if you want to get down to like the most nitty gritty theoretical uh, levels of it, we're talking about how do you teach someone to look at the world dialectically? Sure. How do you teach them to 
see what we were talking about earlier, the idea that history moves, particularly when we have this idea shoved down our throats day in, day out, that history is immovable or that it simply happens independently from agency. So the idea of forcing people to to think in a different way was very much connected to that. Sure. Um, You look at someone like one of my favorite surrealists is a woman who... um, until recently, didn't really didn't really get her full due. A woman named uh, uh, Claude Cahun. Uh-huh. Um, she was French, uh, and actually, she was. I, I don't think it, it may not be fair to actually call her a woman because she lived outside of the gender binary for sure. most of it. So, in some ways, you see the the connection between, um, you know, b- between violating the logic of gender norms mm. and also violating it, or of. Breaking with the logic of, of gender norms might be a better way to put it, um, sure. and its connection to breaking with the logic of capitalism—that yeah. logic of history just happening. Right. And so, and she was someone who she was a photographer, writer, and her her material was obviously very striking and stunning. And yes, it pulled you out. But she also lived in occupied Nazi-occupied France, uh-huh. and her method of resisting—I mean, she did some very brave things Mm. she you know would would crumple up little notes basically urging people to kill nazis um and like leave them in the pockets (laughs) of say like nazi officers that stopped in the cafe that she might be in at the time so it's that's a very specific kind of resistance and it's also one born of a kind of pessimism that is necessarily you can't avoid when you're living under occupation particularly when you're talking about fascism. Right. So I, I think that it's kind of, to answer your question, I think it's all of the above. Right. You know, and when it comes to the idea of formal innovation being something that's autonomous yeah. from everything else, I think that that's also an idea that very much is born of the kind of postmodern, the hangover of postmodernism right yeah. now. That this, this notion that, um, I mean, that's the notion that, Outside, if we're not talking about mass culture, if we're talking about the art world, right. big air quotes over that, sure. uh, when you go to a gallery and things like that, that, that uh, that's very much in the same vein as what you were talking about in architecture. Yeah, this totally. idea that somehow your formal innovation is just is justified of its own. Now, it is, but it's also not, you can't. If you think of it as somehow outside of class forces, yeah. then that's also one of the things that leads to art being so reliant as it is today on patronage. Sure. Qu- quite literal and in some ways very medieval <laughs> patronage. <laughs> yeah. And so it becomes, you know, you, you think of something like the 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 formal quote-unquote innovation of Damien Hirst. Yeah. A jeweled skull. Right. You know, this is, he, he obviously is very um, non-committal about what that says, but I think actually he's saying, I, I think, I think that when you look at a jeweled skull yeah. and you don't see something about capitalism in there sure. right now, then, and he's complicit in it. Sure. He, he's complicit in giving the upper class cultural cachet. Sure. And so to think that, any th- any kind of formal informa- uh, innovation is just justified on its own or is just existing on its own in right. some sort of nebulous you know region apart from the 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 day in day out the the daily life sure 
then, well, frankly, we're we're fooling ourselves. Right. right. So. Yeah, it's interesting, and you know, because t- to think about. Um, like culture and cultural practices in relation to the daily life, I think is 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 a is a really interesting sort of um, um, metric to use, I guess, to to sort of judge the success of any of any sort of um, cultural construction, good, bad, or otherwise. And so, you know, I, and and I guess that's that's one of the things I find interesting, right? Because a lot of the sort of like. Um, discourse around cultural criticisms and, and, and uh, leftist cultural critical theory um, is like has has very little relationship to the daily life <laughs> mm-hmm. at, at all and so you know I, I think um, there's, there's a lot of really amazing cu- cultural criticism in red wedge and I guess I'm curious like you know we talked about pessimism and a, a lot of these uh, folks, like uh, your, your Walter Benjamin's, your Frankfurt School critics, mm-hmm. your Dornos, blah blah blah. Like th- they're so pessimistic, <laughs> right? And and it makes sense given a, the historical context in which they're operating, the post-war years. Mm-hmm. Like really, like uh, you know the 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 sort of birth the birth of neoliberalism in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. right? Like the 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 sort of total. Um, uh, oh, I always get this mixed up, Jamie. I always ask you: Is dearth a lot or a little bit? <laughs> I think it if means you, a little if bit. you have a dearth, it means you have a little bit. If you have a surfeit, it means you have a lot. Okay, okay. all right, yeah. So, <laughs> given the sort of dearth of class of class struggle or, or, or activist movements between the the war and 1968, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, there was a lot of reason to be pessimistic, mm-hmm. and so uh, you know, and, and I I know that a lot of sort of like a sort of academics and and uh, cite this kind of theorizing of cultural hegemony as as almost like an, an excuse towards inaction, right? Or mm-hmm. with a kind of great deal of sort of pessimism about what's possible, and it kind of becomes this excuse. So, uh, and 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 I suspect that. Um, um, the red edge, uh, the red wedge curatorial um, <laughs> team and editorial staff does not read Walter Benjamin uh, mm. in the same sort of way. So I guess I'm, I'm curious, um, like what, like how, how how do these sorts of figures maybe play into the daily life of producing Red Wedge? Um, like how <laughs> how do you make them sort of relevant? Um, how do you take the good parts and pull away the bad parts? Are there good parts and bad parts? Can they be separated? Um, sort of I don't know. Like I always say, I set the table with a lot. <laughs> of really unfair questions and I and I see what you pick up. So. No, no. I, I, I think that's actually a very interesting question yeah. and it's it's one that actually for the past couple years has been very much in the front of my mind too. Yeah. I, I, I am of the mind that we need to change our definition of what pessimism is uh. because a lot of the time we it gets confused with just straight up cynicism. Sure. And I think that when you're talking about cynicism then yes, that is very much close to the excuse for inaction. But yeah. I, it, to me... I am a, Walter Benjamin was a revolutionary pessimist. Uh. He was a Marxist, and his Marxism led him to revolutionary pessimism in a way that what does that pessimism mean? It doesn't mean that change isn't possible. It just means that you really don't have any faith left in the current order of things. Right. Um, and you resist not because you want to necessarily, but because you have to. Yeah. Uh, someone like Walter Benjamin was someone, I mean, he... Which does seem like an idea that is in, that is uh, exactly. in everyone's daily life. <laughs> uh, exactly. And I, yeah. I, I think it is, when you look at someone like Walter Benjamin, who, well, I mean, he committed suicide so that he wouldn't be handed over to the Nazis. Sure. This is... You can't, in that world, you can't deny a bleakness that exists. But at the same time, you think of, 
uh, Buenaventura de Rudi, the the Spanish anarchist who was part of the Spanish Civil War, who fought uh, mm. in the Spanish Civil War. One of his his quote that always sticks in my head is that we are not the least bit afraid of ruins. Mm. I think that's really crucial and important for any leftist to understand today, mm-hmm. uh, particularly because we re- it really does feel like we are in a position where the idea of no future mm. could be very literal. Yeah, We are at a moment when I, I whole corners of the globe are just sinking into violent anarchy. Sure. Um, there are, I mean, climate change, honestly. The idea that this planet is going to make itself uninhabitable right. in revenge for the Anthropocene, <laughs> out of revenge for, the, for, 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 make, uh, for everything sure. that uh, capitalism has done to it. Yeah. Um, that's, these are very real. And I think, again, being pessimistic about all of that doesn't mean um, giving up. Right. It means... Like I said, understanding that you need to resist, that there is nothing that is going to be done for us. Sure. Um, and nothing is that is going to happen, period, unless it is one collectively. We will either do this collectively yeah. or we will fail and right. history really will end. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I, to me, that pessimism is... I think that that's one of the things that actually does very much motivate at least myself and at least a few of the other mm-hmm. editors at Red Wedge, um, which is, and I, I think that's one of the things, if you're going to be able to sort of take a step back, mm. not physically, not not withdraw yourself from political activity, but like in the way you think, sort of step back and look at things for what they are, Sure. then you have to reach that kind of, you know, what Antonio Gramsci said, which is the pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Right. Uh, and, well, I think art, again, if we're talking about art as something that is a yeah. tool that can change the way you think and imagine can allow you to imagine different scenarios, different worlds, different arrangements, how everyday life can be revolutionized, sure. then pessimism has to play something of a role in that. Mm. And I think that's that's one of the reasons that actually many of the surrealists, again, yeah. um, saw themselves as revolutionary pessimists. Sure. The situationists, the same thing, actually, Yeah, who, are, who participated in, who I actually think are probably more relevant to architecture yes. because they're encouraging us to reimagine the city. Right. The idea underneath the paving stones, the beach, sure. uh, so on and so forth, and that you can revolutionize. You're not just all of a sudden taking all of the productive forces of capitalism and placing them in the hands of right. working people. That necessitates a formal change in everything you sure. do. Um, so I, I think I, yeah. I, I think pessimism has to be part of that formula. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense, and I guess I've never thought about it in this way. I, and and it also strikes me that maybe that that's a kind of answer to um, the the difference between the revolutionary imagination and this and this sort of uh, like. Um, uh, the the architectural imaginary as it's been sort of posited in recent years the architectural imaginary is is, is totally rooted in a kind of optimism about like mm. you know uh, I, I'm thinking about Jeannie, Jeannie Gang uh, uh, Studio Gang's project at the last Chicago Architecture Biennial that was like the Polis Station that was like a, an architectural imaginary about like well what if you had a better police station that was like <laughs> you know like somehow transparent and everything like that's it's sort of an 
unfair characterization of and a project see, that had some good ideas in it. And but, the revolutionary uh, pessimist yeah. would ask, "Well, what if <laughs> what if we just what if we just imagine no police station? <laughs> right. yes. What if we imagine a world where the cops aren't?" aren't sure. mediating our relationship to right. our surroundings. <laughs> right. You know, that that would be the pessimist yeah. revolutionary totally. actionable, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I and because I, that's like the architectural magic it usually relies on sort of really like just putting putting a utopian vision out there um, and somehow hoping and praying that it gets taken up. And a lot of that is sort of really premised on the idea that we live in a system that is broken, not a system that is working exactly how it's how it's intended to function right, yes, right? Yes, and yes. and and so yeah like of course if you put out a utopian idea and there's a problem out there then um you know people might be like oh great here's a solution we can finally fix this problem but that's not the situation that we're in that we exist in right mm-hmm, mm-hmm, there's no mm-hmm. there's there's no there's no problem for um a lot of the people who stand to benefit from this system, from yes. these systems yes. of of institutionalized racism, of um, you know uh, exploitation, um, fin- financial or otherwise, et cetera, et cetera. So um, yeah, I don't I don't know that 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 for me makes makes it very sort of clear what the difference is between um, a revolutionary imaginary and a uh, architectural imaginary. I keep well, yeah I keep throwing I keep throwing shade at like this thing that happened like two years ago so I don't know <laughs> that well, some of our architectural audience might be getting the, yeah the but. question that gets raised and, and yeah. obviously me not being an architect I sure. can't really speak on that my my background is more in, in music criticism mm. and, and and poetry criticism but um, the the question for me is what does it mean to have a revolutionary architectural imagination right that's that's what comes up to me because I think that there's something that the left actually and this is another reason why red wedge exists there's something that the left has forgotten mm. or is only uh, forgotten isn't the right word i think it's only just starting to remember mm. at this point what it means to be utopian mm. uh because the american socialist left because it's been so fractured and isolated over the past Tank, 30 yeah. for, uh, 30 or 40 years yeah b- because of neoliberalism mm. because of well so many factors the sure. breaking of unions the fact that there's no social safety net here in the united states we've had to sort of just hold on for dear life to the very basics yeah. the rudimentary nitty gritty of everything yeah. and i i think that's that was necessary for survival but what we lost is that utopian dimension mm. there and right now i think that's really important because uh I, again uh we it feels like dystopia yeah is not imagined right anymore we are living through aspects very significant large aspects of what have always been uh what shows up in just about every dystopian novel film uh poem out there i mean yeah. it it there are Remember when Children of Men didn't feel like a documentary? <laughs> Remember? You know, like when it came out and you God, I really hope the world never looks like this. But sure. God, you, you know, it, it, it's kind of hard to, to deny that. So the question for me becomes how does, how do we conceive of utopia and dystopia as actually interacting yeah. with each other? Uh, I think that's really needed right now. So I, I, I would say, I mean, to me... Be, that's not to say that we just need to have blind optimism to right, everything. Right. And it sounds to me like some of the folks that you're talking about are some of the, like the blind sure. optimists. Create a utopia in but, your mind, plop it in the middle that, of a room, right, and people will just some, right. so, somehow make it but happen. That, I don't think yeah, it's that. Yeah, yeah and, and, and also, like it's I think the specific character of the utopians, the, the utopias that... Uh, 
uh, you kind of see around architecture schools and and at architecture ex exhibitions. Um, it's really the the its political horizon is so low actually, mm, interesting. And, and so like you, and 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 that's maybe the more specific sort of issue, right? Mm -hmm. And and where utopianism um, uh, it, it sort of presents itself in that way, but but it's actually you know um, sort of maybe shaded by a kind of. Clintonite centrist liberal or uh, centrism of, of, of politics of realism, yes. where it's like your utopia must be utopian, but it's it can't be too utopian, <laughs> and um, other otherwise you know it's never going to be realized. And then you kind of sit there maybe with revolutionary pessimism. It's I got news for you, it's never going to be realized anyway. You know this <laughs> this sort of thing um, that you're you're putting forward. There's not going to be a polis station. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, so um, it becomes this kind of um, legitimating slick on a lot of really bad stuff that happens that, mm -hmm. um, but I guess um, just to switch gears I think um, so so issue issue three the summer 2017 issue of Red Wedge is out um, uh, there's a new issue coming out soon in in the next month or late so. November like, we're aiming for yes gotcha. yes yes so so maybe maybe you can sort of um, Tell us about some of the things um, that are in this this issue that I have in front of me, issue three. Um, I, I, I know maybe maybe you can speak to um, your view of uh, Brex, the republication of Brex War Primer, which I think is very relevant right now. Um, yes. And then maybe we can um, sort of you can hint at sort of what's what's coming down the pipe um, in issue four. So uh, issue three, the theme of it is Return of the Crowd, and mm. it actually is very much related to what we were talking about at the beginning of this segment, which is the the idea of class forces and masses, the masses becoming a factor in history again, sure. or very obviously becoming a factor in history in mm. a very undeniable way. What does that do to art? What does that do to artistic expression? considering the way that, again, what we just talked about, yeah. the, the way that it can help us imagine something sure. different. Uh, so all of the art and poetry and criticism featured in there uh, is based around that that notion. Uh, mm -hmm. There is a review of uh, The Handmaid's Tale that J. Matthew Camp wrote uh, that I think touches on some of those, particularly in terms of sort of the specter of right populism mm -hmm. as people when you have people going around saying make Atwood fiction again, <laughs> you know, like you, you, you realize how yeah. you realize why it is that so many people were, were really magnetized by that show at, at sure. the same time horrified. Yeah. Uh, there is a review of uh, Bertolt Brecht's war primer that I wrote in there republished after being out of print for God, a very long time, actually sure. uh, republished by Verso and Brecht. He wrote, it's an interesting, it's basically uh, putting, Magazine clippings of World War II right next to little sort of rhyming couplets. Yeah. Uh, and he, it, it, it's very Brechtian in its mm. own way because it sort of pulls out the absurdity and the horror of war as one and the same thing. Mm. Uh, and I was, I, I felt really privileged to, to write that review. Uh, Adam Turrell is on the idea of aesthetic leveling. Uh, there's poetry from Sonny Hutton, from Mike Lineweaver, both excellent award-winning poets mm. in there on the ideas of oppression and envisioning uh, I mean, the idea of whether you actually, whether a future is actually possible mm. right now. Uh, poetic ruminations on that. There's art from Howard Berry, from Courtney Biernott. 
there is just some really, really uh, wonderful uh, um, uh, uh, material in there that I'm actually really excited to have to have put out. Uh, Neil, Neil Davidson's long form essay on um, on that we thought was just going to be a two parter. Yeah. The second part is appearing in issue two coming up. Uh. Uh, now it looks like it's going to be a three parter <laughs> because Neil Davidson is. A word machine, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, dude has won the Isaac Deutscher Prize, uh. so he is, uh, and, and he's just a brilliant thinker. Uh, and he's he's written something. He is in the process of writing a long, uh, you know, three basically long form essays on uh, the relationship between the ideas of modernism of Leon Trotsky, Georg Lukacs, and uh, Clement Greenberg. Oh, that's interesting. Yes, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think it's, um, and it, and it, he's taking. About thirty thousand words to unpack, uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and, which is good. Uh, Can you so, give us yeah. a couple minute cliff notes? I don't <laughs> know if that's possible. <laughs> uh, no, okay. I don't think it is, my friend. <laughs> I um, no, but but um, uh, so issue four actually yeah. is going to be based around the idea of uh, the art of, um, well, not just the art of nineteen seventeen in Russia, yeah, but we're using the centenary of the Russian Revolution as a starting point to talk about. What is it that the idea of uh, a a world controlled sure. by the poor, by the oppressed, by the working people? How did that completely shift everyone's notions of what's possible? And with that, what is aesthetically yeah. possible? So how did you know? How did all of that uh, yeah. play out? And uh, so that's going going to have the second part of Neil's essay. Hmm. Um, it's going to have oh Lord, what are we? Uh, some poetry by Margaret Corvid on there, who is, has written three sonnets, actually, about mm. the legacy of 1917, mm. which you hear and you think, huh, how does that work? And the answer is kind of like a Harold Pinter play. It shouldn't work, but it does. <laughs> so uh, I'll just say that much. There's going to be art from uh, an artist named VHS, who goes by VHS Girl. Um, there's going to be... Uh, more poetry in there uh, on top of uh, there's going to be an an, uh, an essay on uh, the uh, poetry of uh, Yevgeny Yevtushenko, uh, the Soviet poet. There's there's just going to be some wonderful, uh, wonderful material yeah. in there that I'm really excited and privileged yeah. to, to publish. Yeah, that's terrific. And, and I guess like, um, you know, we've, we've only got a couple minutes left, mm-hmm. but I, I think probably probably people will be wondering, you know, a, a, about maybe 1917 and, and sort of, you know, you, you talk about this the, uh, uh, to, to maybe our, our, our listeners who aren't f- as familiar with the kind of cultural history um, who don't associate, um, you know, the sort of legacy of the USSR with cultural invention. Mm. So I'm wondering if, if in your last couple of minutes you can maybe just give us a Cliff Notes version of at least sort of the, the turn from, um, I think, this kind of moment that you're, you're highlighting and talking about um, and, and maybe um, socialist socialist realism. And mm. yeah, we only got a couple minutes. Yeah, but, sure. I mean, well, yeah. th- I mean uh, my, my favorite description of socialist realism it comes from my friend Scott McLemy, mm. uh, the cultural critic who called it, who described it as boy meets tractor. <laughs> and uh, you know that that that's what people associate with the art of the USSR. But there was also constructivism. There was the uh, the poetry of yeah. Vladimir Mayakovsky, the futurists, uh, just very radical, experimental, yeah. chaotic, beautiful stuff that was trying to again 
pull the idea of utopia out of the wreckage right. that capitalism and World War yeah. One had left yeah. for people. So. Yeah, I always find it interesting, you know, because I, th- I think when we when we talk about sort of left movements and, and and left art, you 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 can use it, you can use the arts as a barometer always mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, to to see what else is going what else is going on in the world behind the scenes. And I think when we when we talk about this imaginary, to see the sort of um, blandness of socialist <laughs> realism it, it sort of has some some lessons for us uh, about how to read art um, as, a, as an indicator of uh, you know failure of the world that we don't want to bring about or the kind of socialism that mm-hmm. is um, certainly undesirable <laughs> yeah yeah, right. yeah. Um, the, the totalitarian authoritarian uh, yeah I, I, I we need a libertarian socialism yeah or we will have none at all yeah period yeah so. Well, um, I think on on that note, is there is there any other parting thoughts you have with our last minute? <laughs> I, I I would just like to encourage people to to go to the website for Red Wedge, which is just redwedgemagazine.com. dot com. Yeah. Uh, please check us out, and if you like what you see, subscribe. Yeah. Uh, and we 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 are all of us work nine to fives on top of this, yeah. so we uh, we we need your support. Gotcha. So just what it's say. Cool. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for coming. Um, we're going to take a little bit of a break, and when we be, when we're back, we'll be back with uh, Angelie Rao and Zach Mortis. We'll be talking about some stuff. All right. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. I'm your host Kiefer Dunn, and uh, we're here in the studio uh, with Angelie Rao. Um, your inaugural Buildings on Air appearance. Uh, it's been well overdue, and I'm super <laughs> happy you're here. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm thrilled to have you in the studio. We've we've been chatting for quite a while about um, this this uh, get, getting on the show to talk about this brief article you wrote for Chicago Magazine. Um, Jane Adams is not here to sell your fancy hotel rooms, which I think kind of it's the the title almost speaks for itself. But um, you also recently. Um, put out in Chicago uh, Reader, where does the Chicago Architecture Biennial go next? Um, so I'm, I'm curious to, to chat with you about those couple things. Then we'll be ta- talking with Zach Mortis um, about um, his article in, in City Lab called Is Beige the New Black in Architecture? So if you're uh, uh, going to be listening to this in the podcast version, you can pause your phone and read those two brilliant art- or three brilliant articles. Um, but yeah, Anjali, so Tell, tell us about this Jane Addams business before we launch into Chicago Architecture Biennial. Well, it's funny because um, the Jane Addams business was never really my business. Um, <laughs> and uh, I just I happened to be on a lot of different press release lists and yeah. uh, was also in a kind of a, a group text situation where someone was making a joke about like, you know, I'm going to open up a, a hotel and call it the St. Vincent. And, <laughs> and yeah, anyway, I was like, I don't really know what he's talking about. And I, find, I went and checked my email and got this crazy press release about hotel branding, which I just didn't really care about. And I skimmed it and was like, oh, my gosh, what is this? What is this? Yeah. Um, and then I got on Twitter and kind of raged about it a little bit. Um, yeah. And uh, I just happened to have a friend who's an editor at Chicago Mag. Yeah. And so the, the rundown is that the Hard Rock Hotel... Uh, in on the Magnificent Mile in mm-hmm. downtown Chicago is rebranding themselves as the Jane Adams Hotel, the Saint Jane, the Saint Jane. Yes, oh. so she is not. I don't. She's not a saint. Um, so yeah, I mean, I. Uh, it's it's kind of complicated because I think that the bigger discussion that should be had is like, what's going on with the Hard Rock Hard, hard Rock brand? Yeah, like that's like a big deal around the world. There's Hard Rock hotels everywhere. Sure. So uh, that was surprising to me, but then. 
I was kind of like going through my brain, like, what, who's St. Jane? And I studied art history and, and like specialized in pre-1100 Catholic art. Um, oh, I had no idea. Undergrad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so, yeah, I was I, I was thinking about it. And like St. Jane, if I remember, was just uh, a nun who built convents for nuns that could not find a place to go anywhere because they were too old or too sick. Yeah. Um, and that was super not the case. Uh, they were talking about Jane Addams. And I mean, it's just one thing to brand your hotel uh, that's in, in a way that's going to matter to locals. Like, you know, yeah. you want you want your, your thing to be accepted um, by the city that it's in. But this was sort of like just one of those mistakes. It was right. one of those like glaring mistakes and errors that I was really – really shocked that they're still kind of pursuing this and they haven't made any comments about right you know uh naming a hotel after a woman who um pretty much pioneered sanitary living and and you know uh eight hour work days right uh and you know the welfare of women and children particularly so i mean everyone has been kind of they were upset about it for a minute now you know nothing's hurt been heard of since right. i'm guessing they're going through with it so. yeah yeah well and it's also especially sort of peculiar and 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 um galling that they they didn't get in touch with the jane adams whole house which is literally just like a, a mile away yeah uh, the kind of organization that still takes on plenty of philanthropic work and sort of uh continues the legacy of of um uh, of, of jane adams and um you know it's like the least that they could do for their boutique hotel is like sort of uh <laughs> talk to the know, executive director to, uh, <laughs> donate some money you yeah. know um um so yeah i i'm 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 curious about it i i i know that the article was was a while ago but yeah i i would I'm, ha- <laughs> I'm happy to talk about it on building on buildings on air just to like um raise a flag on it and also just like it's it's really peculiar the way in which these sorts of um um image the social movement figures become images that become then subsumed into sort of glossing over um a lot of like inequity in the city right and it makes you question like what is the idea what is an authentic chicago experience Mm, um and that's what they're trying to do. This whole brand is saying, like, we want people to come and stay here who want to have an authentic Chicago experience. Right. Um, but to me, like, there's this sort of weird national tension where people think the Chicago experience is one of, like, fear and violence. Right. And then there are people who live here that see that completely opposite, but also understand that Jane Adams is not the person you should pick on for that kind of authentic experience. Sure. Because, I mean, in a lot of ways she fought for equity, but we still live in a world, that, in, a, yeah. in a city that is, that is inherently inequitable. Right. So. Yeah, and I think that's a good transition to the sort of article about um, the Chicago Architecture Biennial that, that you wrote. Um, so we had, you know, two big Chicago Architecture Biennial specials on Buildings on Air. Um, but I, I think now that we're on the other side of it, I'm really excited to to chat about it. Um, and and your your article really sort of posited that like the the biennial has these sort of two souls in this present edition. Um, and there's what's going on um, at the kind of main venue at the cultural center, um, which presumably many of our, our listeners um, 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 in Chicago and, and elsewhere have seen or um, heard about. And um, you know that that's that's very, I don't know how to describe it in a few words. It's also maybe a little unfair because there's like a hundred different architects on display. But um, I think Zach will tell us more 
about that in a little bit, um, kind of about the way that uh, postmodernism is kind of being rehashed. And, um, you know, you see this very imageable sort of consumable language of like forms and everything. And it has very little relationship to um, social issues by and large. It's not always true. But um, then there's these sort of offsite um, partner events and and um, what 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 are those and, and how does that differ from the sort of main event? What are these two souls that you've outlined? Well, I mean, really, the purpose of the article was to reframe the idea of Chicago's history of architecture as being one that's uh, often traumatic yeah. and um, has had and looking at architecture as a form of trauma. Mm. Um, and how do communities, how have they dealt with it? How are they still dealing with it? Sure. Um, and it's uh, a lot of people look at something like the Chicago fire mm. and they say like, oh, that was a big traumatic incident. And now we have these beautiful buildings because of it. Um, but we're, I'm thinking more of, of things, uh, decisions made by uh, politicians uh, regarding infrastructure, yeah. the, the highway being built and displacing a lot of people. And um, generally speaking, I just think that uh, the biennial with through the lens of make new history, mm. um, they weren't addressing it in in the place that it's in. They weren't really talking about Chicago's traumatic architectural history. And um, a lot of these neighborhood sites, so there are um, five sites uh, outside of the cultural center that are hosting um, their own exhibits that uh, some money came through the Chicago Community Trust mm. um, to fund uh, curators that are local to those sites to create these exhibitions. And um, the subject matter ranges. Uh, Lee Bay at um, the DuSable Museum is, or one of people in Chicago, DuSable. They, he's showing his photographs of the South Side. Um, all the way to we were just chatting about the uh, Puerto Rican Arts and Cultural Center, um, yeah. kind of dealing with the long history of um, ethnic and economic transitions in the neighborhood of Humboldt Park. So there's. A lot of nuances there, but they are really able and given the power and the financial power to discuss um, how architecture has uh, been a place of power for a lot of people that may not be citizens, maybe more politicians. Right. Um, and the moments that um, citizens have been able to kind of uh, realize that they actually have an ability to um, take charge of what their neighborhood looks like. Sure. Yeah, and well, and it's kind of interesting too, you know, when, when the reaction to the biennial has sort of been about how it wasn't sort of meaningfully connected to the communities, but it's almost like people didn't actually go to any of those places. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the, I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, they're looking at the cultural center, which yeah. it's, it's the great irritation of my time uh, working in architecture is that so much time and energy is focused on the loop and what takes place downtown. Yeah. But there are, there are huge communities in Chicago where there are kids under the age of 20 sure. who have never even seen the loop. Right. So to me, it seems a little bit counterintuitive to, fo to bring this biennial to a place that so many people are not really connected mm -hmm. to that, that architectural center. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, and it also, I think, speaks to the sort of... We had we had um, Nick Cordy and Joanna Klappenberg on the last show, and they were sort of talking about their complicity project. And I think it speaks to some of those issues, right, about, like, who is the biennial for? Um, and uh, and really, like, the reason why the city funds it in the first place is to sort of drive tourism, right, mm-hmm. uh, 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 on a kind of base level. It's not to say that there's not, like, positive effects that happen when we... It, it sort of gives us the space to have discussions like mm-hmm. this and brings people to the city who wouldn't otherwise come and 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 maybe some of that bleeds out but uh to to um outside of the loop so it's it's not to say that um you know we should can the whole thing um on that kind of on the grounds of that kind of cynicism but um i do think uh, um it asks it asks some really hard questions um you're listening to wlpnlp chicago 105.5 fm lumpen radio um yeah so um i i, I don't know I, I i think um i'm i always have i always struggle with it right because it's almost like you don't want to you can't you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater mm-hmm. I, I suppose um but i think that the kind of criticism um that you're laying for it i think really holds out a hope that the next edition of the biennial is more of the uh, spreads out more and sort of gets out of the weird the weird space of the cultural center. I mean, I really hope my my big hope is that um, the biennial doesn't exactly end at the end of this year. You know, that it extends past those three months in that suddenly people uh, are given a vocabulary that they can talk about the relationship between buildings and equity and the experience of a city. Yeah. Um, and that's what I, I really want. I really want people just to have a language to use to talk about sure. um, why is it that they're angry when a home on their block is demolished to build a condo? Like, yeah. I want people to have that vocabulary instead yeah. of uh, letting them kind of fuss through the bureaucracy of it. Yeah. Um, just really be able to lead those conversations. And in a way, like, it's people making their own biennial. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, I, that's my big hope. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. And um, so we're going to switch gears. and We're going to talk with Zach, and um, then then we'll bring it back together. Um, and I think Zach, uh, how's it going? <laughs> Real good. Good. Yeah. So uh, you know, uh, like I mentioned at, uh, at the top of the segment, you wrote this this article: "Is beige the new black in architecture?" And um, I think it does it does really address this this sort of cultural cent uh, cultural center, which um, whether we like it or not, in in this moment uh, of of the biennial, especially in its opening week, um, is the kind of epicenter for activity. And, um, you know, you got 200 architects there. And so, um, you know, tell, tell us, is, is beige the new black? I think it's an interesting question uh, that, that the title of the article raises. Like, uh, how, how did you land on that? Um, what's going on at the Cultural Center? Right. So as, as I wandered the, the hallowed halls, yeah. uh, the things that were most interesting to me uh, out of, you know, 150, 200 some architects and their exhibitions were things that were really kind of banal, kind yeah. of boring and recognizable from my own life. So you know, at the Cultural Center, there was like an entire subset of, uh, of exhibits that just dealt with roofs and kind of digitally manipulated images of, the, of them. And yeah. uh, there was a, a big, literally cosmic meditation on on the color beige. Uh, <laughs> there, there were some great... Uh, <laughs> Like a cosmic meditation on the color beige, <laughs> and it was well done. It sounds it sounds like the most ridiculous, uh, you know, uh, arty trip down a stairwell ever. But that that was a good one. Yeah, I mean, there were uh, great reexaminations of of the suburb uh, mm-hmm. and why we should be thinking about McMansions and those types of things. There were big box stores. 
uh, in, in various states of disrepair. Uh, there were I, one of the coolest things there was uh, Paul Pressner and Paul Anderson's uh, these kind of this colonnaded series of uh, of glazed brick, right? So that's mm. like we all remember that from from the ca- the elementary school cafeteria in these kind of gross modernist knockoff <laughs> buildings that, that we inhabited. That's where you ate yeah. you know, terrible pizza uh, and and uh, and put your lunch money out, and that was really emotional, evocative for me. So yeah, it, th- that was really fascinating for me. That was a, that was a good hook in, and I mean that's. Uh, what was particularly interesting is that this idea of bringing in the kind of boring, the, the banal, the ridiculous, the the disrespected, the marginalized, that's not really new to biennials, but I think it's happening at a really intense rate. It's happening with um, like a, a digital ferocity. Yeah. More and more where, you know, architecture has all these new tools to draw from internet visual culture and just kind of spin out and control, out of control and... Uh, really get interested in you know internet visual techniques like aggregation and collage, and kind of one direction uh, to to update the biennial tradition is to kind of do what uh, you know Robert Venturi and, and Michael Graves were doing uh, during the Pomo era, uh, but just kind of uh, do it all over again on the computer and then post it on Instagram, and that's what a lot of the really <laughs> cool stuff uh, at uh, at the cultural center was yeah, but I, it's interesting though because you know it's like you when you when you look at the cultural center, there's definitely this this kind of quality of you know none of these things sort of look like the other, but they all totally look the same, right? And I think it does have to do with this reduction to sort of image and and the sort of same sort of techniques being used in the background, even though like the specific instantiation of them in each little art object, architectural object, was totally wildly different. Um, and, And that's like a kind of strange double quality. And I guess, uh, you know, people have been writing about this sort of like Instagrammable architecture. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what I'm curious what, what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I think the the apotheosis of that approach was really Andrew Kovacs uh, mm-hmm. diorama. Uh, homage to John Stone. Uh, I'm not sure I remember the entire title, but I mean, it's really just a bunch of plastic toys glued together in this crazy kind of mini diorama scaled cityscape. And right. and uh, yeah, I mean, you you can take that specific technique and you see it just all over the building, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. You see that in uh, Tatiana Bilbao's uh, high rise project, which um, someone did two years ago, actually, for uh, in, in the previous iteration of of the CAB. So no points for originality there. Uh, but yeah, but you see this uh, all over the place, and this this really seems like a time where uh, the the kind of cool kid, uh, international, you know, globe surfing biennial crowd, they're really digging deep into medium and technique right now. Yeah, uh, they're they're taking this, they're kind of absorbing this internet visual culture. They're flexing new muscles and kind of learning new ways to to put things together, all kind of within this genre that sure. you that you mentioned. And they're focusing really intensely on that. And as such, I think they're kind of they're less engaged right now in. Uh, kind of drawing the, these deep connections between politics uh, and, and politics vis-a-vis history, uh, sure. sort of as, as Angeli alluded to. Yeah, yeah, which which is really which is really hard. Uh, you know, we just had Alex Billet from Red Wedge talking about the relationship of like socialism to to the arts, and um, you know, his sort of 
take one of the things that he was talking about was about revolutionary pessimism, right? And and how that that sort of connects connects us to the daily life of of, of sort of everyone, right? That the, the arts the arts being a kind of um, giving expression and form to the idea that um, an arts criticism giving expression and form to the idea that you kind of have to resist in this moment because for most people it's not an option and so I, I, I wonder I, I wonder what that says about the architecture biennial you know I, I on some level I almost it's it's a re- it's a really easy critique to make that like it's it's just so out of touch um, and I think I, I've made that critique but I I also do have an iota of sympathy for like the um, like you know they just put on an architecture show and you see so many versions of architects trying to do politics in just the most ham-fisted bad way that it was almost like man at least they weren't trying to be something that they're not right <laughs> like, yeah. at least they weren't trying to be activists yeah i think yeah. i think some of the most the most successful or maybe most sustainable approach uh, that a lot of these firms at the Biden have adopted, and I think in large part it's the right one, is it's pretty a pretty moderated stance of architecture's agency and role in politics. Uh, I mean, there were the kind of... Uh, uh, the go-go aughts in the 90s where we uh. had kind of just no moral mandate and that was fine and we were all interested in parametricism and, uh, and it was just kind of form after form and then the economy crashed and architecture for humanity is is the big thing we should all, should all be doing, you know, uh, yeah. mud hut community centers in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but guess what? Architecture for humanity little, literally went broke because people didn't give enough money. Right. Um, so, I mean, a lot there was, there was a bit of a facade, a, a falseness, a superficiality to that as well. And I, I think at this point, the pendulum is sort of swinging in the middle there where um, people recognize that, uh, you know, architecture is downstream from policy and politics. And it has some it has some uh, real power and agency to to change conditions. But it but it's limited. Right. Right. I mean, this is I think this is by and large the most successful folks. It's a generation that are pretty comfortable saying design isn't going to save the world. And and that's. uh, that that's where they're at. I think uh, within a biennial kind of exhibition context, you yeah. can, you can still ask pointed questions, and I think maybe uh, yeah, the biennial cultural center should have asked it, asked more pointed questions. But uh, yeah, I mean, in in the realm of the built, uh, yeah, the mud huts are you know not going to do much about uh, Breitbart, Trump, whatever. Just like sure. listed here. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, you know, of course, I, I always have to throw in the sort of architectural lobby position, <laughs> which, you know, it's it's really hard for architects. To, you, even even if we do accept sort of um, looking internally at architecture. Right. Um, it seems sort of ri- ridiculous to um, abandon politics within that sphere. Right. Um, if, if we're worried and focused on our own house, you know, there's plenty of issues that are deeply political in in our house The you know, um, uh, wage gaps in architecture, sort of oh, like insane amounts of overtime that like precludes people from acting in, in political ways, or taking on pro bono work, like like to to do sort of things that are just for the sort of public good, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and and yeah, and and that seems like maybe a way to sort of thread the needle, but that's my own sort of like idle speculation on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could imagine the future of biennial being. Uh, you could position it sort of like the the architect in society, so you could you know kind of uh, break out um, you know like 
per architectural lobby's point of view, um, you know, the architect as, as worker, you know, yeah. as laborer, or the architect as um, as capitalist, as artist, you know, you, yeah. you could you could break it out. And I think with all this, you could, uh, yeah, you could make more pointed. Uh, Political attacks, yeah. if you wanted to. So, yeah, I mean, it's really, it's, it's really the desire it and, and the that, venue. Is it fair to say that we've acritically entered the territory of architect as Instagram celebrities? <laughs> I mean, that would, that, that's, that's, that, that could be half. I mean, that, that will be half the show. Like, no matter yeah. what they do next yeah, time. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, maybe it's, it's the, the fate of the world. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm excited to, to bring Angeli back in, and, and I kind of realize I'm, ha- I'm really happy to have both of you here, um, and, and. I I just sort of have this dream that the three of us collectively like unseat Blair Kamen uh, as like the Chicago. I thought you said we, we form a cult. <laughs> yeah, no, not a maybe, but cult of architectural criticism. But we just like run architecture critique in this town as a triumvirate um, <laughs> from from a perch at the top of yeah. the Tribune Tower uh, some, or something. <laughs> gotta get some fancy pinky rings for that. I think. <laughs> Yeah, but but I think well, let's uh, make it happen. Yeah, let's make it happen. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think that like it's it's a really interesting idea that you're sort of separating these things and also like creating this binary of like either architects are participating in an intellectual dialogue or they're building mud huts. But in reality, like even the architects here that are licensed and work a lot work very speculatively and do these kinds of proposals and things they also have to build mansions in order to fund the, yeah. this, this work yeah. and like that's why i think that i think that's why it's kind of a sad view yeah. of, of of it and and the reason why i wrote that article was because i had been fuming for about six months about something blair came and wrote <laughs> um and it was one so, line yeah. it was one line yeah. in a piece that he was just like maybe all of maybe the biennial working with expo will just like just bury the news about gun violence in chicago oh, oh my that. god I, oh, I remember that yeah and i just i lost it and yeah. it was like i've just been waiting for this moment to write this thing. Um, but do you think he meant that like completely, like completely like market oriented tourism dollars cynically, or was that just like that, that might be how it, pl- how it plays out? <laughs> I have no interest at all in li- listening or reading to white male art, art or architecture critics play the sarcastic card in their work. I, I think that to say something like that is to make a very bold statement and I would not I would be very hesitant to let any bit of me that of my my very light and loving heart open <laughs> to the idea that he was not being serious yeah. and you can't make a statement like that and not expect people to just sort of like burn your newspaper it, it was just it was really kind of obscene it was a it was a really obscene thing to say and it, that's that's when I realized that like there's a, there is a huge disconnect between the architecture community and then the community at large and I think that to say yeah design's not going to save the world but right. no one's anticip- no one's looking for that everyone's just looking for some level of transparency and the understanding architects are looking for it yeah, yeah and, like, and, and people who just live in the world and have to deal with things yeah. like this huge yeah. hole across the street yeah. where they're like something's getting built there but there's just there isn't the transparent process of understanding how buildings get built how cities get built right and what yeah. yeah i wonder you know i think um 
Blair Kamen, come on Buildings on Air and defend yourself if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to get Blair Kamen on this show. Um, but but I think uh, I think um, it's interesting to to put it in those terms because I, I, I think that less the power of of design as such or, or architects really like architectural sort of media um, and criticism um, and you know in the newspapers, on the radio, um, um, in, in various publications, like really is what sort of threads that needle, right? Um, it's, it's the way in which architecture becomes sort of like public and, and takes on a power and an agency and because it's elucidating these systems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think a lot of architects think that you elucidate the systems with a building, but, but actually this is maybe the function of the discourse. The discourse actually does that a hell of a heck of a lot better than a building. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious what you guys think the state of sort of architectural criticism and critique is, especially the kind of um, world that, that y'all both operate in of, um, you know, quasi-journalism, quasi-editorializing. Um, like, like what, what is its purpose? Like, how do, what, how, what shape do you see it taking in this day and age? Um, it's a big question, I, I guess. <laughs> but I feel like with the Chicago Architecture Biennial, a lot of the takes, right, which were which were numerous, sort of um, staked out a lot of positions in in that field. So maybe that's like yeah. A good so in, in terms of the take yeah. economy uh, for the biennial, <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, uh, the only one that really hit home for me uh, in terms of kind of getting outside of the design community bubble was was Angeli's piece yeah. and the reader. Um, that's really it. I mean, there, there were good reviews and there were, uh, bad reviews. I mean, I'm, I mean, reviews that were, you know, formulated poorly yeah. and, and reviews that were, uh, formulated well, uh, that entire spectrum, but, but really, you know, yeah, it, Angelie really wrote the only thing that I've seen so far, uh, that, that had something to say to, you know, a wider audience, about an everyday lived reality in this specific geographic place. And that's, um... That's sobering, right? I mean, uh, this thing's just getting started. There's, you know, all kinds of, for, for example, CAF programming that's much more community-oriented. Mm, yeah. Uh, so, th- so there'll, there'll be more opportunities to to dig back in. I mean, the um, National Public Housing Museum has an exhibit going up with ArcaWorks uh, later this month. Uh, so that that'll be another opportunity to you know, take a look at that and yeah. and, and uh, critique. Uh, you know the way this all connects to the community, but uh, yeah, so far, uh, pretty pretty sparse. And I mean, a biennial is just a big, huge, unruly beast. Like <laughs> it, it is it is harder to explain what that is and why it matters uh, to a general audience than it is like your yeah. average museum show. Mm-hmm. I think perhaps the answer is because it doesn't really well and not <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah. I mean, and like the the. I think that like the the function of architecture writing, and it's something that like I am interested in and try to do often, is to relate the idea of talking about the city and the built world through feelings. <laughs> I'm a big feelings person, uh-huh. um, and that's so it's really important to me that like uh, we start moving away from, or at least personally, I start stop moving away from uh, just sort of like fact based reporting. I mm. read a lot of curved. Um, which has a lot of really wonderful writing about just what's happening. Yeah. Um, 
But then they've been slowly shifting, their national presence at least, has been slowly shifting toward um, questions of like how to not be a gentrifier in Los Angeles, sure. things like that. And that you know, even of itself misses the point. Yeah, because it's coming from a narrative perspective that is inherently architecture and real estate focused. Mm. Like that's the the venue. And I think back to your original point, I do want to bring up the idea that there's a difference between editorial and marketing language. Yeah, and the way that the biennial is marketed um, is that it's a public. Uh, educational opportunity and event mm. and that everyone is welcome and that's kind of the writing that's coming out about it still reinforces that and it's very frustrating <laughs> it's very frustrating because it's not it's not it's public in that it's free and it's in the cultural center which is a right. free venue but it's not public in that no one knows exactly what it's about <laughs> It's not, I mean, I, I didn't understand half the stuff that I was seeing, and I feel mm. like I'm an educated person. <laughs> I didn't feel, I felt illiterate in that yeah. moment of walking yeah. through the, that place. Yeah. So I think that editorializing is, is different from the way that they're selling it. Yeah. Yeah, I think Angelie is absolutely right to talk about leading with feelings as much as you can when you're trying to connect to a wider audience. I mean, that's why in the City Lab piece, I was talking about how the, the ceramic uh, bricks made me feel about elementary school. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that's brilliant. That's a brilliant thing that people yeah. relate to. Yeah. 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 So I, mean, I think kind of a back to, back to the main cultural center exhibit, uh, the the advantage maybe of uh, you know, bringing in the bold and the banal really is that you, people can see, you know, uh, things from their own lives that they sure. recognize, but kind of the thing you lose there, if, if that's a populist thrust, then the thing you lose is, uh, especially with this really intense internet aggregation and clause, you lose a kind of cohesive narrative, right? So architecture <laughs> for a long time, it was kind of, here's an ism, uh. now we're at another ism, now we're at another ism. That, I mean, that's com been completely blown up. So that's another challenge, I think, that yeah. critics and, and writers have to figure out is how do you kind of tell a cohesive narrative to a broader public uh, when you don't have these kind of uh, this, these, these guideposts that were these big uh, ism schools that sure. we were able to follow along for so long. Yeah. Should we just start like as writers and critics start coining our own? Like we're in a we're in a period currently of um, nostalgiaism where everyone's just sitting around. And, we should, yeah. but we it, like each of those can only last like three months. Exactly. And then like we then it's like a Twitter poll to like what the next one is, and you just like you go, you go, poll. you go, yeah. you go. <laughs> That's that, that's actually a really interesting idea, and I think it would be like that would be a fun internet Tumblr project. Yeah. <laughs> well, but you know what? That's it's totally what I what I find massively interesting is that even though like we have like it's it's all sort of collapsed in on itself, it is like the same sort of forces that are driving it, right? Like it's the same sort of like uh, like there there is a consistency and in internal logic. That drives that that is structuring and driving um, um, something that appears to have no logic, right? Mm -hmm. And that that which is which is precisely, I think, the sort of idea of like like marketing and and um, you know the the weird sort of world of um, architectural exhibitions and and how we consume architecture that I think is premised on a weird other weird 
architecture problems about um, you know interesting architecture living only in the halls of exhibition spaces in academia, um, which is a, which a problem because of developer logics, et cetera, et cetera. Like you can go really far down the rabbit hole, but it's it's like you know it becomes it becomes a challenge to use the actual thing, um, the exhibition space, the piece of the image to. Um, um, draw some attention to these bigger systems that are slippery and really hard to talk about because, you know, like pretty soon you just get to like everything is everything and ah, how do I talk about it? Yeah. Especially in like 3,000 words or whatever. Yeah, I mean, and I, I don't really care about, I don't, I don't, I'm not really that crazy about putting labels on things anyway. And like yeah. when, like a lot of the stuff that you were talking about earlier, I just it doesn't resonate with me in, in a way. But I feel like for me, I just kind of want to wash, I just want to wash it away. I just want to forget all, like my spaces in architectural history class that I took in grad <laughs> school. Like, I just, I want to like let go of that and like just let it wash through me and then start giving power to young architects and and cultivate an architecture community of of uh, people of color and women. And, and I feel like th- in that way, like you can at least just start moving in a direction where there is an open dialogue sure. and where people who are making buildings reflect the communities that they're making those buildings for. Yeah. And that's where you kind of like, st- you move out of the exhibition hall and you really get architects uh, to to be meeting people where they're at yeah. in a way. Yeah. And I mean, we're in Chicago. This is like our celebrities here are architects. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Zach, do you have any th- thoughts? I guess I have one question for you guys. I was convinced that this was going to be the Trump biennial. Uh. <laughs> um, and I, I I only saw one direct reference to Trump. Did you guys expect to see just like Trump like everywhere or are we surprised by the relative absence yeah. or I well, I guess that's what I was saying like I, I thought that it would sort of be a lot of architects feeling like they needed to respond to this and um, um, and I th- as I think many of us do feel a need to respond to this the administration in our lives but like I I, I, uh, I did expect to see more sort of architects hinting at a kind of activist architecture practice and that that didn't happen like I said I'm almost more appreciative that that they didn't you know do a, a sort of really bad version of aesthetic activism um, that that really contributed nothing while pretending to but I wasn't I guess I wasn't surprised really like when I when I interviewed Todd Palmer the the director of the biennial uh, for that reader article the, the things he was talking about were just so far removed from current conditions um, and really looking at the, mm. the niche uh, how do architects address history and apply it to their current practice? And it's like, well, I mean, the yeah. history the history of the election isn't even you know, like right. it's not even that long. Well, and then it, it raises the question, which I think you, you, you mentioned in your article, like, which history, right? Yeah, um, whose history? Yeah, whose history? Yeah. Um, well, we've we've we have to wrap it up. Um, again, let's let's become the triumvirate to um, take <laughs> Blake Gaiman's seat. But do do you guys have any last final thoughts as by by way of a wrap up? Go to the biennial. Go to the bi- <laughs> go, yeah. Go to the biennial. Go to the uh, go to the various community anchor side shows. Uh, don't read all the wall text, which I yeah. tried to do. Yeah. I was always a kid in school that like did all the all the, yeah. all the assigned reading all the time. Yeah. I'm not sure that did me so many favors, yeah. uh, but I guess I would just say uh, this is a show that uh, I think maybe more than the last time does give you a really pretty clear, concise picture of where architecture 
is at and where uh, this community of architects is at, but that doesn't necessarily make it a better show than the last. Right. Yeah. right. I just want people to go and react to it. Yeah. And I want to know, I want people to tweet at me and tell me how they feel about it. Yeah. And uh, send me the things that they think are totally bogus. You know, <laughs> like, uh, you know, you go to an art, the MoMA and there's sneakers on the wall and people are like, what is this? This is an art. I want that. I want okay. that reaction. All right. <laughs> yeah. So, so wait, send up your Twitter handles. Yeah. What is it? Uh, I'm at Anjali Routes. Yeah. At Zach Mortis on Instagram and Twitter. All right. Sweet. Send us your stuff. Yeah. Sweet sweetness. That's all right. We'll see what we get. And you can also tag Ad Buildings on air, BLDGS on air. And um, yeah, we'll see what we'll see what comes in. Um, Zach, Angeli, thanks so much. Thanks, and uh, in a few minutes, Cheers. we'll be back answering your questions about buildings with Anne, Louie, and Craig Reschke. All right. You're back with Buildings on Air. I'm joined, as we are every regular show, with by Anne, Louie, Craig Reschke of Future Firm. How are you guys doing? Hey, we're good. Great. How are you? Good. Good. I'm excited. Um, we're back to our regular schedule, um, and I'm excited to ask you guys questions um, about architecture and buildings. Um, I was we, we had a minor panic in the studio just a moment ago <laughs> to uh, you know let you know how the sausage gets made. I thought I lost my questions, um, but no, they're here um, and they're good. Um, and and I guess we'll we'll jump into it as we always do. Um, maybe we can start, maybe we can start with this one that is is a really funny joke. But as always, with the mailbag, we'll probably end up answering the question seriously. Um, it's atheist homeowners. When will you repaint? <laughs> like when will you repent? You know, that's the joke. Maybe, uh, maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe for me, like being from. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just laughing because that seemed clearly so hilarious to you. And Craig and I were like waiting for the punchline. <laughs> Well, maybe because, like, I'm from the South, like, you know, uh, fire and brimstone, uh, like, Southern baptism, like, is is more readily, like, in the back of my brain, even though I didn't grow up in that world. I grew up next to it. Um, but, yeah, um, when, sh- when should one repaint their home, I guess, is the serious so way I was imagining <laughs> a bunch of homes that maybe had formerly been churches and... Mm. <laughs> Did people need to repaint them? And that was when I was waiting for the punchline that never arrived. Yeah, no. <laughs> that was embedded in the, the question joke. itself is the joke. So, okay, yeah. I'm with you. I, I, so and and now I'm unfairly asking you seriously. When should folks repaint? Oh, Craig is both a <laughs> former Catholic and has uh, opinions about repainting. So I'll hand this one to him. Oh, and also bizarrely, in a former life, your producer was a Union painter in upstate New York. Ah, yeah. and knows <laughs> an inordinate amount about paint. So well, I can dip in on this answer one. this question. <laughs> Uh, my first response would be don't paint anything that hasn't been painted already. Don't paint brick. Don't paint vinyl siding. I see so mm. many strange things painted around the city. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I don't know, Jamie. How often should someone repaint? Depends on the surface. It depends on what the surface condition is. And I mean, painting is an aesthetic choice, to be honest with you, first and foremost. If you're not painting to protect the surface, for example, if you've got a brick, uh, excuse me, a wood clapboard home that is peeling and uh, is taking on water and is obviously, you know, uh, mildewing and doing all kinds of stuff. Then you're going to paint it. Then you got to talk about what kind of surface coatings you're going to use. But people forget that paint for a long time didn't exist and homes stood perfectly fine, just weathering. In fact, in New England, uh, where my parents live, there are a number of homes that are just weathered gray. Uh, in Japan, they char homes with cedar and there's a nice black gray covering that comes in. So it really comes down to how does your home look and how do you want it to look? If you're living, however, in a I guess an association, like if you're living in one of those fancy places, you're probably going to be told how often to paint your home and what color to paint mm-hmm. it. But in general, you know, it's it's a totally personal choice. And 
the only things that nowadays you really got to think about are what can you paint with? You know, in the old days, you could paint with all kinds of volatile compounds that lasted a lot longer <laughs> that, that now you're not allowed to do. You know, you could use all kinds of things, basically kerosene if you wanted. Uh, you can't do that anymore. So there's there's a number of other things that, that go into it. But, you know, I happen to agree with, with Craig. If, it, if it's a surface that's never been painted, if it's a natural wood or natural brick, I think it's idiotic to paint it unless you're a sign painter, you know what I mean, <laughs> which is a totally different thing. But for me, you know, I, I love the, the natural surfaces and I would prefer to keep those. I'm, I'm always very depressed when I see painted brick as an exterior. So that's yeah. a roundabout way of saying there is no set time to paint. Yeah. And you just have to make that choice based on how you want it to look. Yeah, I guess this isn't a real question, or that that I ha- this isn't a question I have on my sheet. But coming mm. from that, you see all of the these um, buildings that are painted gray. Um, what's what's the deal with the gray brick? It's pa- uh, the contractor it gray. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. a way to make a house look new and fresh for only a few cents. I yeah. think there's like a excellent maybe curbed post on it or something about about how like many many people who are flipping houses are painting them this dark gray huh. because it's a color that somehow is able to appeal to both people who want kind of like a traditional look and people who huh. want a contemporary look yeah. and it hides all matter of sins. <laughs> um, and I think, I mean, I think it can look nice, but I don't think it should be used like just to kind of, I don't know, like as a, as a concealer, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I like the I like the Zhao brothers painting the uh, brick buildings black down the street. I think that's chic and has like kind of an aesthetic flair. But I think like yeah, default contractor gray seems like a not really considered choice. Yeah. I I always wonder with painted brick though how they tuck point it in the future because then you have to tuck point it and then repaint it. Mm. Or I think that they're using paint instead of tuck pointing because the paint is cheaper, which seems yeah. like a bad route to go. Yeah. Well, you can actually tint the tuck. I mean, you can tint the tuck pointing so you can match it. Mm. You can color match your grout. I mean, I, I agree with you, though. It's probably somebody just covering up the fact that the tuck pointing is falling out. <laughs> you know? and, if, yeah. and if you're buying a building that's been painted gray because you think it's a new building that's being flipped, you might want to have somebody inspect it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. You know? Yeah, yeah. So. Agreed. Yeah. Because tuck pointing is expensive. It is. It's super expensive, yeah. And it look I've never done it, but it looks really painfully slow when I'm watching people like grind out every three inches along a wall. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's um, you know, drawing bricks painstakingly um is is is, is enough. <laughs> you mean pressing pressing the hatch button? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um some of us still draw bricks by hand. <laughs> Mostly so we can, um, you know, complain about people drawing bricks on a computer with one <laughs> click. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, let's move on to another question. Um, can I put a new linoleum floor over three existing linoleum floors? You can, but why would you want to? <laughs> I feel like we had – you missed last round of Mailbag where we asked – we had another layering question about yes. somebody who wanted to cover their drop ceiling with a new – glued on ceiling to the drop ceiling in which we yet again said you can but why would you want to yeah every building that we've worked on that's a renovation whenever they start doing the demolition you there's just like layer upon layer of people patching things up and it always like feels so good to watch someone rip out all of those layers (laughs) and kind of get the building especially the old chicago buildings down to just like bricks and joists and kind of start fresh i don't know like it seems fairly easy to rip out a linoleum floor, so why would yeah. you not do it? 
Yeah. I guess I guess if you were, you know, following the trends in linoleum, <laughs> um, which you know, I mean, linoleum is a kind of wonder material where you can do a lot of things. Um, you know, the and and actually, like sheet linoleum is really quite beautiful. As a, it's like one of the lost modernist materials, right? Mm. Like you, it's funny when you when you read all of these like. Um, uh, like Le Corbusier and like Towards the New Architecture talks about, um, you know, asbestos being the future. And you like look at this with like contemporary eyes and you're like, oh, my, oh, my God. But like, of course, you know, when he was talking about it, you know, fire was a very significant problem. And you had this miracle material that didn't burn. Like, you know, it's easy to understand, um, you know, the kind of excitement but like sheet linoleum was the same way and now we think about a linoleum floor like the tiles and you're just like oh my gosh this is you know they, they get so messy and ugly but um the sheet linoleum is just gives you a perfect surface um, mm. um it can but, be coved up at the end so like, the like the kind of maybe not core but like post-war architects like really um fighting for new new products like was partially I mean, like, as Lobby will tell us, like, a professional condition, too, right? Like, yeah. Andrew Schenken writes about the way that, like, because architects weren't allowed to advertise, they many, like, got in bed with uh, manufacturers of, like, asbestos mm. board, of linoleum, of, like, a variety of other materials so that they could, like, advertise themselves and also this material. Yeah. And, like, that tone always took, like, this is going to be the housing material of the future, right? And, yeah. like, but some one, like, you, we kind of wonder now, like, how much of that rhetoric was, like, truly, you know, like, architect X, like, thinking that, like, soon we were going to make all buildings out of this and how much of it was, like, we haven't worked through the whole wartime and, like, n- now we need to get our name out there, yeah. right? Well, yeah. as we always joke about the insulation lobby. Um, <laughs> the, the which is real. <laughs> which is real. It's <laughs> <laughs> definitely not a conspiracy of, you know, purport. I'm, I'm going to become the Alex Jones of building <laughs> materials. <laughs> Jamie, will I still be able to have a show if that, if that happens? <laughs> Are you going to call it uh, building material proof of planet? <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> God. <laughs> Operation Endgame? <laughs> then, then the answer is no. <laughs> okay. That seems fair and reasonable. Yeah. There was like this this Twitter spat about um, PVC recently. I don't know. This there is was like a Twitter a, spat about oh, PVC. So th- oh wait, no, I know. I saw a promoted tweet by the PVC people who said yeah. architect, but they added the wrong handle. Yes. Oh. Yeah. This, yes, I saw this too for this architect is magazine. A little. Right? In- wait, do you know what? Um, do you listen to Reply All? Do you know what Yes, Yes, No is? Yes. Can, should we quickly do a building? Do we have time for a mailbag? Yes, Yes, No. Can you find the tweet? I can find the tweet, yeah. And, and Jamie can play it too. Okay, yeah, all right. So, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll answer, I'll, I'll ask Craig another question to, while, I find while you tweet, find the tweet. And we have another right. play Yes, Yes, No. All right, okay. live radio. Here we go. Okay. Uh, so, Craig, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, how do you prepare a central air conditioning unit for winter? Oh my God! Uh, you can cover the outside uh, condenser with a. They make like okay. a thing you can slip yeah. over the top of it. Yeah. Um, we have a window air conditioner that we put <laughs> in a garbage bag and put in the basement. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think most people don't really um, cover or prepare them for winter, though. I mean, growing Do up, I? my parents didn't with their. Yeah, air conditioner in our suburban well, home. There, there is a vent shutoff, right? That like uh, it's a little trap door that like keeps the air from outside going. I think mostly it's like, especially if your if your external AC unit is going to be near a place that's getting salted. I imagine you would want to protect it from the corrosive, um, salty water melt. Um, but you still need to bring in exterior fresh air, uh, right? Yes, yeah. you do. 
you do. Well, I mean, most that, of them, aren't they combination now? I mean, you've got a furnace, and then you've got a combination airflow off a modern... I mean, yeah. if a window air unit, you, you don't do anything, right? I mean, you well, do, hopefully you, do you nothing take it out. You take it out. Well, I mean, yeah. it or, or you just do nothing because you're lazy. Yeah. But, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Ours uh, is still in our Right. Window. So, you know, ours oh, is it's too. like it's been hot out this fall. Yeah. It has been hot. But I mean, like the modern ones, like we're the one that's going into my burned down house will, will be both. I mean, mm. it's yeah. going to drive both the furnaces and the yeah. air conditioning. So, Wait, so the I... answer is do nothing and just hope. Okay, okay, I have the treat. So Wait, hold on. Yeah. First, the so answer is maybe shot. to uh, have a heat recovery system on uh, fresh air intake so that yeah. when you're bringing in fresh air in the winter, it yeah, uh, these recovers some of the heat recovery heat. systems are pretty wild. It's basically like a heat exchanger. Sometimes it's like a literal rotating wheel that goes between the um, cold air tube coming in and the, the hot air that's being vented out, um, yeah. and it saves the hot air and puts it into the cold air and so it reduces usually you, you, these are generally not residential systems um but um there can Contempor- be contemporary yeah. residential systems yeah. are integrating them uh, more often oh interesting yeah. i would also say it's actually probably better to clean your ducts yeah. because that actually affects mm. you more than anything else because you're going to get a lot of dust especially if you have mm. any allergies or asthma mm. switching over from the cool to the hot is yeah that's, and that's something you should tell your general contractors to make sure that they clean the ducts uh, oh, yeah. when they're done with construction. Because the worst thing is when you buy a new house and then you turn on the HVAC yeah. for the first time and nice. it blows all of the construction <laughs> dust all over. Yeah. Right. I want to make mailbag t-shirts that say clean your ducts, but it's like a duck. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's Thank good. you. Thank you. Ducks in a yeah. Uh, you found you've okay. I found so the tweet. Found okay, the tweet. so I'm going to read the tweet and then we're going to go around. I'm going to ask the three of you if you understand the tweet. Okay. okay. All right. So the tweet is from Amanda Colson Hurley, and she has su- subtweeted. I don't know what the right word for this. Yeah. She's tweeted, and there's a picture of another tweet. Her tweet is looks like the vinyl lobby is mad about an article in Architect magazine and paid for a promoted tweet with the wrong handle. Yikes! And then the tweet that she quotes is. Vinyl verified is the handle, <laughs> it, it, which is vinyl verified, and it's. At but they don't have a blue check mark. They do not. <laughs> Ironically, they're not verified. Uh, at ArcMag updates misleading article, but refuses to publish letter correcting the record on vinyl products. Do you understand this tweet, yes, Keeper Dunn? I do. Do you understand this tweet? Jamie? I believe so. <laughs> do you understand this tweet? Ben? I get the tweet, but I have not read the original architect article mm. that they want corrected. Oh, uh, nor have I. Well, <laughs> keep so we're at yes, 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 yes. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I don't understand the tweet. Oh. I've only seen the tweet. Okay. I want you all to yeah. explain it. All right, to me. I can I can explain because I, I read I read the thing and, and so basically <laughs> basically what's going on right is is um and, and I actually you come across this as an architect where, when you're working with um, hospital clients or a lot of clients um, who have this kind of idea of being environmentally sustainable or somehow good stewards of people in the environment where PV, PVC um, a, as a material itself is not carcinogenic, but the process of making PVC is really bad for the people who work in PVC factories, mm. um, which is generally in like which are generally like not in the states um, either. So uh, a lot of companies have sort of made as a push. Um, PVC-free buildings. So when I was uh, designing a lot of healthcare clinics, we would spec um, PVC-free 
everything, which which is actually really hard. There's a lot of plastic in a building. We we think about PVC pipes quite a bit, but um, it's not just that. Like you have um, lots of trim pieces that are made of PVC or partially made of PVC. Um, windows, vinyl windows. Um, you uh, the list kind of goes on and on when you when you start thinking about it. So a building does have a lot of PVC in it in these in this day and age. Um, but basically the 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 vinyl lobby is really like sort of afraid of of this um, push, mm. especially because it's really easy because there's a lot of alternatives to vinyl. Mm. Um, and vinyl has been this kind of wonder material that like enabled so much construction for cheap. Um, so that's that's the kind of general force and and arc mag, I guess the, and they've really lathered themselves up to believe that there's an anti-vinyl conspiracy, which is like uh, pretty wild. like really, I think it's just like an easy thing that people do. No, we don't need vinyl. Um, but some um, I, I, some some architect magazine um, articles have been talking about this, like you know alternatives to vinyl and everything else. And they submitted a letter to the editor that was like, "You're spreading untruths about PVC. It's actually totally fine and good, and like mm. you know the backbone of American building. So like how how dare you?" Um, hmm. and, and fist shaking like this. Hmm. So they're trying. So then they they've basically invented this vinyl. It's and if you look at Vinyl Verified, who it's supported by, it's it's like. 10 different um, vinyl companies and, mm. and industry associations, but they're basically creating an AstroTurf campaign um, that is, you know, composed of activists who are really people who work for vinyl companies. Oh, is AstroTurf a, a demeaning fake way to say fake grassroots? grassroots. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So they're, 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 yeah, they're creating, exactly. Yeah, so they're yeah. creating this AstroTurf okay. group called Vinyl Verified to um, uh, 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 combat the untruths, the vicious untruths right. um, about uh, huh. vinyl. Does yeah. architecture lobby come down, come uh, adjudicate on products? Like, is there, do, you're only interested in architectural labor. You're not, you're not not interested in, but you don't currently take a stance on issues of labor in building product manufacturing, right? No, no, no. Mm -hmm. It's not like I, th I think there'd be plenty of architectural lobby people with a lot to say about that, but yeah. not it's not, not a, a formalized position or anything. I mean, it's something that I'm really interested in. Right, like can there be fair trade building products, right? Huh. Uh, can we talk more about PVC, though? Because PVC <laughs> uh, <laughs> is not allowed by the Chicago plumbing code in commercial sure. buildings. Right. But that is not because of sustainability reasons. I think no. that's because of uh, some sort of labor, right? Yeah, it's because of the plumber's union. Uh, at least that's the that's the prevailing logic that the architects always give. Um, um, and you know, when we're talking about unionizing architects, you come up against a lot of this because they're like, well, what about those like crooked plumbers who you know <laughs> won't let us use PVC? Um, but it, you know, basically, the the it's a lot. You have to have a cast iron. Pipe. Um, um, I, I don't know exactly what the code is. You're allowed to use some PVC in some instances. Well, not in a commercial building. Yeah, you can no, use never PVC in, in yeah. residential only. Yeah, and right. in so like. Uh, Trust me, the building you're sitting in found that out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. you can use cast iron for your sewer line, and then you have to, to have copper. to use copper for both uh, delivery lines and for drains. That yeah, and, and for vents too. 
Yeah, and for vents. Yeah. But I don't, is it, I guess. It's more labor intensive. To do copper. Yeah. Well, the fire department also claims that PVC in a commercial building, if there's a fire, is hazardous and would cause more hazards. Hmm. And yeah. since there's a density in commercial buildings that you don't see in residential buildings, it would hurt firefighters. Yeah. Mm. That's interesting. So it's not always about it. The plumbers actually, and I, because of this very building, I happen to know a number of plumbers. <laughs> they would prefer to, to work in PVC because it's quicker and you can do more jobs. Right. But yeah. they're not allowed to. The working in copper is it is very time intensive, but it doesn't actually necessarily boost plumbing revenues because you can't do as many jobs. Mm. Yeah. Because you're actually really tied up. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't I don't know if the crooked plumber analogy is the correct one because the the no, fire department not. is the one that, that actually comes in and says you can't have PVC. That's a myth that I'd be so thrilled to dispense with. So. But I really, I'm really interested in a career in vinyl activism. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you there's a ton of money in it, unlike literally any other kind of activism. If you're listening out there, Vinyl <laughs> yeah. Verified, you just call me up. I'm really, really deeply yeah. Take note, paid yeah. protesters right. at yeah. the vinyl lobby yeah. as your next client. Sponsor, sponsor the show. Like, oh, you know, we can, beco- we can become the vinyl lobby That's mouthpiece. so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> How low can we yeah. go? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yeah, if, if next w- month's building's on air, is just a giant advertisement for vinyl. Um, you have you have permission to come to the station and and you know I don't know sock me in the face. Throw a throw yeah. a copper pipe through the window. Brought to you by Dow Chemical. <laughs> throw a copper pipe through the window Slip like it. that Apple advertisement. Like <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, looking forward to that. Yeah, cool. Well, we've got just three minutes left. Um, <laughs> so let's answer one final question here. Um, can I use joint compound to level my floor? What kind of floor? I think the answer is no. Yeah, <laughs> there are there are many uh, many products available yeah. that come in a liquid form that are self leveling that you can what put is self leveling? Well, I guess it's hard to. That's like one of those words that's hard to define without just using the words. It levels by itself. (laughs) (laughs) It's basically a bucket of stuff you pour on your floor with some edges, and because it is liquid enough, it will become level and then harden. Yes. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. Joint compound will literally pulverize into dust. I think too. Uh, There's actually joint compound on the floor of our office, right under under Kiefer's chair, chair, and the chair of the desk behind Kiefer. That's why there's so much dust around here. That's why, and that's why my shoes are always dusty. I have to Uh. shine my shoes every three days. (laughs) Yes. You. Yeah. We should avoid that. I didn't realize that I had personal stakes in this question. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's why we why we have to wash the office floor so often. Actually, Kiefer secretly submitted this question (laughs) so we could answer no on air, and then as your pseudo landlords you could hold us to it <laughs> yes you're indeed. like then why is it under my chair as we speak <laughs> all right um do you, do you have time for one more make it quick we got one minute okay one quick um uh, here's another floor question oh wait here's one would this cold cause burglars to enter i cut out a cable wire that was wired to into the wall from the outside and pulled out the cable wire leaving a cable hole from the outside to the inside of the house now i have a cable hole inside of the house that leads to the outside of the house <laughs> would this give burglars an opportunity burglar shaped like ants. <laughs> uh. I don't think it will give burglars an opportunity, but you should probably cock it from yeah. both the outside and the inside <laughs> yeah. to stop air from moving through it, yeah. as well as 
bugs on other but critters. If, I'm curious though. If, if I think if you had a very enterprising burglar, maybe. Sure. And so I'm curious if there's any burglars out there listening, feel free to submit an anonymous <laughs> answer to this. If there's something you could do with a cable hole. Um, there are cable holes in all buildings though. So if that was a good true. way to rob someone, you would just like cut cable cords and pull them out from or push them through and then do whatever mysterious thing you plan to yeah, do right. the more through the hole. I'm, <laughs> The more interesting question that I want to someone is to ask about. Is why can they? I, okay, did, ask the question. Would you like to? No, please. Uh, <laughs> Comcast is allowed by the city of Chicago to drill <laughs> horizontally through walls to bring cable into your house, but they are not allowed to drill vertically through floors. Or roofs, ah. obviously. Or, yeah, which is why, like, so we wanted them to bring the cable into the basement of our apartment, and then we we had to drill the hole ourselves up through the floor to bring the cable into the apartment. Because they want to just drill through the brick on the side, which I always think looks so Oh, that's junky. interesting. And so, as a burglar risk. An, an unanswered <laughs> question um, for folks to cogitate on. If you have an answer, send it to us. Um, you can give Buildings on Air an answer this time. Um, but Anne and Craig, thanks so much for, for answering these questions. Um, and we'll talk to you again next month. Um, first Saturdays of the month, Buildings on Air. Um, thanks, everyone. And thanks to our super producer, Jamie Trecker, makes the show possible. This has been Buildings on Air Lumpen Radio. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at BLDGS on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com. This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.